I'm terribly grateful to be here. Uh, as I've said already this morning, I, um, I'm always glad to be in a room with people who know that following Jesus is not easy to do. Uh, if we're going to live in this world and live believing in the biblical narrative, live believing that we're actually in the middle of the story that the Bible tells us that we're in the middle of, I can guarantee you that this is not going to be easy to do. But like we also like to say in the field of neuroscience, the brain is able to do a lot of things that are really hard for a long time if we don't have to do it by ourselves. And so part of why we come together on Sundays is for us to be reminded about the story that we're in the middle of. For us to be reminded that we actually live on this side of the resurrection and that for many of us, the resurrection is this kind of cognitive idea, this abstract notion of something that happened somewhere in our past history. But if we were to take it seriously, this idea that a guy was dead and now he's alive and it happened not that long ago in God time, it would radically change who we are. But I have to, I have to admit, it's easy for me to forget that that's the story that I'm living in. Uh, some things to know about me. I've, I've been married for 33 years. Uh, I have a daughter who's 29 who uh, is an associate pastor at a church in Virginia, and I have a son who's 26. He, he uh, lives and works in Manhattan. And those three relationships have been probably the most formative relationships that I've had in my life. And I'm, 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 I'm grateful for them. Um, and so that's something to know about me. Another thing to know about me is that I'm a professional sinner. Now, I, I think that any time that you do something for a long time, and that you're really good at, you can just call yourself a professional. And so I'm a professional sinner. Like, I don't just, like, I don't, I, like, I'm really, like, I'm, like, I am a professional. I, I do this, like, for, it's, almost, it's too bad I don't get paid for it because I'd be, like, a, like a trillionaire. And I say that because that part of me that uh, easily forgets that I'm in the middle of this biblical narrative needs to be with people who are remembering this and who are working to remember this every week. So I'm grateful to be with you in that context. We are at, uh, we are in part three of a three-part sermon series on emotional well-being, uh, as I understand from what you've been doing. Um, we've talked about depression, you've talked about anxiety, and today I get the distinct honor of talking with you about shame, everybody's favorite subject. Um, and um, we're going to talk about it today uh, but I want us to imagine th at least two things that are happening. The first thing that I want us to be attuned to is this. That um, when we come for worship, when we come to be in this space, we do come to remember. We come to be reminded of things. That's what we come for. But it's also important for us to know that we come with anticipation. We come needing to pay attention to the question, what is God going to do here in this room in the time that I'm here? I'm not just here to download information. I am here to actively engage with God such that he may change me, such that what I sense and image and feel and think and what I do literally with my body is going to be different when I leave the room than when I arrived. But I will tell you, evil will not want you to pay attention to this. It will want you not to pay attention to the worship music. You can engage it while you're doing it, but it'll be easy to forget when you leave. 
And I want us to say that it will be important for us to be curious and be open to what the Spirit is doing at any given time. I don't know what that is, but I do know this, that God is wanting us to live into and tell our stories ever more truly, aligning with the gospel, the good news that with the resurrection of Jesus, everything changes. Not least of which is the parts of each and every one of our lives where shame still is running amok. So let's begin with this. We're going to talk about shame first in terms of like what it actually is. And if we were to think about this from the perspective of neuroscience, as that's the, the work that I do, if we were to think about this from a perspective of neuroscience, we would say that shame has a number of different clinical implications and clinical characteristics that show up in everyday life. But you know, you don't need to like read a bunch of data to know what shame is. How many of you here uh, like, feel like you can remember having like, felt some kind of shame in the last month? Raise your hand. If you're not raising your hand, you're lying. <laughs> okay, what about in the last week? Anybody raise your hand. Okay, now everybody raise their hand because they don't want to be ashamed. They don't want to be shamed by the psychiatrist <laughs> who's got the mic, right? Okay, what about like in the last 30 minutes? You're all lying, right? I would just tell me, right, see, I have one honest person in the room, right? So in, in, in some sense, like, we all kind of know what this is. Like, you don't need a psychiatrist to come and tell you, like, what it is. You, we, don't know, we, we sense it. We feel it. But there are some interesting things about it that once we do know what it is, we can begin to pay more attention to it. And in paying more attention to it, it has less ability to do to us what it typically does. So here are some things about it that would be helpful to know. The first thing is, shame is a neurophysiological event. It is something that literally happens to your brain and your body. It happens to your thoughts and to your emotion. It happens to all of who you are when it occurs. It's not just, oh, I feel bad about myself because I've done something or because I am something. It's something that is literally happening first and foremost to you in your brain. And what does that look like? Well, a guy by the name of Alan Shore, he's a neuropsychologist on the West Coast, and he talks about shame as if you were to imagine driving a standard transmission automobile. Now, for those of you who drive stick shift, you know that there is the gas, there's the brake, and there is the clutch. Everybody knows, right? And if you slow the car down, if the car decelerates, and you don't implement the clutch, what happens? It stalls out. And does it stall out quietly? No. It, like, it stalls out violently, right? So if you're in the car and it stalls out, it is representing shame while you feel ashamed about what's happening in the moment. <laughs> Human beings all have an accelerator. An accelerator, in our terms, is the sympathetic drive system, part of your brain that is in go mode. So when a baby comes into the world, we say the baby comes into the world doing two things. First of all, every newborn that comes into the world is looking for someone looking for her, looking for him. They're always doing this, and it never stops. I'm always looking for someone looking for me. This is what we read about in the scriptures where God says, it's not good for man to be alone. I'm coming to find you. I'm looking for someone looking for me. But the other thing is this. We come into the world in go mode. I come into the world with my accelerator to the floor. Newborns come into the world after having traversed through this hole that's about this big around. Can you imagine? Think about this for a second. You know, look, there, there are, I'm sure there are, there are mothers in this room, yes? 
Yes? Okay. You've been through childbirth, right? You feel like, what was God thinking, right? You've been through childbirth. But here's the thing. Nobody has ever yet to interview a newborn to say, Jim, how was the trip, right? <laughs> Jim doesn't get to talk about these things, but I will tell you, if Jim were to be interviewed, he would say it was hell, right? Coming, like coming through this, this pipeline, like who, who, would, who would ever want to make a trip anywhere like this? So newborns are from the beginning. They are in GOMO. They're like, I got to get through this to get out of this. And then they're just in go, 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 unless they're sleeping. And they keep doing this. And if they're in go and they're happy, then they're going and they're happy. If they're going and they're not happy, then they're crying. They're letting you know that I want to go. Fair enough. At some point, that go mode extends to not just to the crib or to the edge of the bedroom, but it extends to the brunette in seventh grade English class, right? And then it extends to I'm going to leave house and go to work or college or I'm going to go. So we are going even as adults. We're going even as adults now. And in fact, when we get to older ages, we start to worry because will I have something to go to? We long to be people who are going. That's our accelerator. It's always moving. But then we know that we can't just accelerate because if all we were doing would be in go mode, we'd be in a lot of trouble because when, you know, 12 to 14-month-old children start to, like, go too much, what do we do then have to say to them? No. We have to say no. We have to apply the brake. Right? It's not just the accelerator, but the braking system in the body has to be applied. And that braking system amounts to what we call the parasympathetic system. And adults activate this system in infants when we say no. And we say no sometimes very quietly, very gently. Sometimes we say no very, very strongly. But we have to learn restraint. We have to learn how to pause. We have to learn how to not do the things that I want to do. I have to choose not to do the thing that I really want to do. I have to choose not to eat the donut, not to look at pornography. I have to choose not to be irritable with my wife. I have to, I have to, I have to go. It has to be stopped. Fair enough. Here's the thing. My braking system, if I'm a newborn and an infant and a toddler, my braking system is not something that I'm going to activate on my own. Something outside of me has to help me learn to activate that. And that will be the way it will be forever. I'm always going to be in this place of discerning, am I in go mode or am I in slow mode? But either way, I need to have a clutch. Because if the engine starts to decelerate and no clutch is available, things end badly. And in human relationships, it looks something like this. The clutch for human relationships, anytime we are saying no, the clutch is my deeply connected interpersonal relationship with that newborn, infant, toddler. So even when I'm saying no, it's not just that I'm saying no, it's how am I saying no to them? How are they receiving it? How are they hearing it? This is applied to us no matter what happens. We can be in go mode in a conversation in a party where you and three other people are talking. Has this ever happened to you? You and three other people are talking in the party and you, you offer a comment to the conversation. You offer a comment and they just ignore you. Does that ever happen to anybody? Right, the conversation just keeps going. It's as, if you, it's as if like you ghosted them, but you didn't mean to, right? You're there, but you're not there. Don't you love that feeling? <laughs> Essentially, the brake has been applied to you, but no clutch. And imagine if you've ever had the opportunity where someone comes back around and says, oh, wait a minute, like you said something back just a moment ago, but I forgot what it is. What, what, what were you saying? You know how that feels when somebody comes back to find you. They're applying the clutch. They're noticing you, and you notice being noticed. 
We long to be known, we long to be seen, felt, understood more than any other force in the universe. It's what we long for more so. So shame is what happens when no clutch is applied. Shame is what happens when no clutch is applied when we're newborns, toddlers, or when we're in the boardroom, when we're practicing with our friends musically, when we're doing anything in which we are in go mode, in which we were made to create things, made to do things, made to be in the world and be like our creator. In God's image, we were made to make things like he makes us. And when we are in go mode, and that is decelerated with no connected human relationship, shame is what emerges neurophysiologically. Now that's just one feature of it. There are some other features that are just as important. Here's the first thing. One feature is that shame begins to emerge for us as human beings as early as 15 months of age. Long before you have language, long before you understand things, long before you feel bad because of what somebody said to you, you're already picking up things in your house. You're already sensing things, imaging things. You feel shame and it is mediated through the interpersonal dynamics that you have with your caregivers. 15 months of age, we've been practicing this for a long time. We're like professional shame managers is what we are. And the thing is, because it begins at such an early age before our prefrontal cortex is online, we don't even know that we're doing it. No wonder shame shows up so early in the scriptures because it has to reflect what human beings have been doing ourselves from our earliest ages. So it's early in development. The second thing is that it's disintegrating. It disconnects my thinking from my feeling, from my sensing. It makes it hard for me to be creative. It makes it hard for me to think clearly, cognitively. It disintegrates my mental processes from one another while it simultaneously disconnects me from you. If you're ashamed, do you want to raise your hand and tell people about it? No. Like you don't even want to tell me this now. It's disintegrating. It's isolating, another feature is. When I feel ashamed, I don't turn toward you. I turn away from you. And my neurophysiologic response is automatic in that way. I don't even have to, like, practice doing this. I just do How many of you ever watched a dog be ashamed? Yeah, you see what a dog does, right? This is what human beings are doing. We just don't have tails. I mean, this is, but this is what we're doing. We turn away. We hide, we isolate, and it is the isolation, it is the isolation that then puts us in a position in which it becomes what we call recursive. It is self-reinforcing. If I'm by myself, I don't have an outside brain that can stop the process, and so the process only snowballs. And with its recursive nature, it becomes very, very private to me. It becomes something that happens in my head, and there, therefore, this is where most of shame shows up. Many of us in this room have had significant, singular, traumatic, and shaming incidents in our lives. But I will tell you that shame is not at its worst in those places. Shame is at its worst in the privacy of your own brain, where you were saying over and over and over again, all day, every day, I should have done this, I shouldn't have done that, I'm not good enough for this, I'm not good enough for that. All kinds of words that eventually stop even being words. Eventually, we don't even need words. I just have some sense that I'm not enough, some sense that I'm not worthy for you to be with me in the room. And then, of course, 
we have to develop coping strategies to cover this up because it's so nauseatingly awful. And we cover these, we develop these coping strategies, and we think that the coping strategies are there for our benefit, but mostly what they're there for is to help me not pay attention to how ashamed I feel. And with this, then comes one of the primary ways that shame operates for us. Hi, welcome. One of the primary ways that it operates is through the function of condemnation. You know, I'm so good at condemnation, and I have so much of it, that at some point in my day, I just feel like I need to share it with you. And so I do. And it might not all come out of my mouth, but it happens in my head. I'm criticizing people up one side and down the other. Of course, this doesn't, I'm not saying this out loud because then I would be ashamed like you would know that what I'm really like because I'm a professional sinner. But I say it in the privacy of my head. And we say those people who shame others are doing so out of their own shame, this condemnation. Our son, who's 26, uh, is a person who is deeply committed to Jesus. Uh, and he works hard at that. Um, but when he was younger, when he was in eighth grade, he had real challenges with faith, but then met Jesus in a really powerful way when he was in high school. And, uh, you know, I, I, I tell people, I don't deserve my life. I've got these two kids who actually like me. We like being together, you know, and you can't, you, as, as, as I said earlier, like, you could be Jesus raising kids and it's still a crapshoot. You know this, right? If anybody here who has children is like, it's a crapshoot. Like, like, because we cannot guarantee their outcomes. I wish I could, but I can't guarantee their outcomes. And I'm just so grateful that I have kids who are, like, willing to stay in the room with me, that, that, that love me, or at least, that, at least that's what they seem to pre pretend to do, that, that they love me. So when Nathan came to faith when he was in high school, I mean... It only solidified our relationship. It was already really quite sweet. And then he goes to college, and he runs into a bit of a buzzsaw. And many of us have had this experience. We go to college, and we run into some class, and uh, my faith is upended. And he came home at Christmas of his sophomore year and said, I'm not really sure I believe this stuff anymore. Now, here's the thing. Um, I, I was a guy who, when I was, when I was 13, I, I met Jesus in this really powerful way, and six months later, I was in the middle of my own existential crisis. I don't know if I believed this stuff at all, and it lasted for 20 years, waxing and waning and waxing and waning. And the thing is, I knew that if I ever became a parent, and if my kids ever got my genes, which meant they were going to ruminate about these things in the same way, I was going to be Heroic. I would be that dad who would be with them, walk with them, ask the questions. It's going to be great. Like, I don't care how long it takes. Like, it's cool. It'd be great. And there Nathan and I sat on Christmas, two days before he was heading back for his spring semester, and we're having this conversation about faith. And you ever have those conversations in which words start to come out of your mouth that you know shouldn't come out of your mouth? And as they come out of your mouth, you think you shouldn't, and you're trying really hard, and the harder you try to stop them, the faster they try to escape because they know that you're trying to stop them, and they just want to get out of your mouth as fast as they can. And there are things that you shouldn't say, and the more you know you shouldn't say them, the more you say them. This is a conversation that we were having. But what was really awful about it was that without 
using these words explicitly, what I was really saying to Nathan was, you know, if you're not willing and courageous and smart enough to believe the gospel, I think you're just kind of an idiot. I didn't use those words. And I didn't have to. You know, 60 to 90% of all human communication is nonverbal in nature. Your tone of voice, your facial expression. Tone of voice is actually considered to be the single most dominant way we communicate with other human beings. It doesn't really matter what your words, but your tone of voice delivers about as much as you can imagine it will deliver. And we've all been in those conversations in which we've either received or given people shame without them even explicitly telling us that we're an idiot. The very conversation in which you offer something to your friends at the cocktail party and they just ignore you, what they're essentially saying without saying it is, your words don't really, in fact, you don't really matter enough for us to pay attention to you. Now, here's the thing. Um, our right hemispheres that take in all that nonverbal stuff, uh, those uh, ways that our brain works, um, those are experiences that we have for which there is no easily verbal solution. You just don't come back the next day and say, hey, all that stuff that I gave to you yesterday in all the nonverbal and verbal ways that told you that you were an idiot, just forget about all that. As if somehow it's just magically going to go away. We could talk a lot about the neurobiology of how shame operates. We're not going to do that today, apart from saying that once shame is engaged, neurologically, it's very hard to reverse the process. It's very hard to reverse the process. There are neurological reasons for that. Two days later, he left for school, and I was a wreck for two weeks. Because essentially, uh, I had taken this very tender, sweet relationship and just basically trampled on it. And uh, so I called him two weeks later, and um, we're on the phone, and I'm like, I just feel like I don't know what to do because I'm, I'm desperate for this relationship to be back where it needs to be, and I got no way to get to him. He's at school eight hours away, and we have this conversation, and I tell him, you know, as it turns out, It's not that I'm worried so much that I think that you're not smart enough. I think I'm worried that you think I'm not smart enough. I think I'm actually worried that if I'd been a better father, then you wouldn't even be in this mess. I think I'm worried that not so much that you're losing your faith. I think I'm worried that I'm losing my boy. And I don't know how to stop that. And out of my own fear, I end up shaming you for reasons that got nothing to do with anything. And we do this all the time to each other. And we're so good at it that we don't even know we're doing it when we do it. But we don't do it to each other first. First, we do it to ourselves. Condemnation is the point of the spear of the message that we are to be abandoned. This is the last feature of shame. The message that you are by yourself in the universe. 
you are awful enough that I want nothing to do with you. It is not just condemning you for condemnation's sake. It is to condemn you to let you know I don't want anything to do with you. And all of that is what we read about when we just look at the clinical literature. Fortunately for me, eventually, in my conversations with Nathan, our son, you know, I would tell him this, and every now and then we'd be visiting. He'd come back for spring break, and I would be worried because of what I did, and I would say, are we okay? And he'd say, yeah, we're okay. But he's still working, you know, at the time he was still working through faith things, and I was still worried that, like, my comments would still have residue. Like, I'm still ashamed of what I did. And I would say, are you okay? And he'd say, yeah, we're okay. And then he would, in the summer, are, you, are we okay? Yes, we're, we're, we're great. And then in August, he was going to a semester abroad, and I wasn't going to see him for four months. And I said, are we okay? And he said, you know, we're okay. But if you ask me one more time if we're okay, we're not going to be okay. <laughs> and I said, okay. <laughs> but here's the thing. We can talk about shame all day long in its clinical context. But what's more important for us to know is this, that shame isn't just this thing that happens to be in the universe. It is a thing that is embedded in our stories. I only know about shame because it affects the way I live my life. It affects how I tell my story day in and day out. It affects the thoughts that I tell about myself and about you and about my kids and my wife and my business partners and so forth and so on. It is the thing that dictates my narrative notion that is going through my head all day, every day, and it doesn't even have to include words. And this is why the Bible is so important. And we come back to this question, in what story do you believe you're living? I hope to believe that I'm living in the biblical narrative, but the reality is when I get anxious, I'm not living in that narrative because, you know, Jesus said, look, today has enough worry of its own. Don't worry about tomorrow. Like, I got this. I'm like, no, I don't think you do. I'm going to worry. If it's okay with you, I'd like to worry as much as I can. And I'm going to go do that. You see what I mean? Even as much as I'd like to believe that I live in the biblical narrative, there's lots of moments in my life where I'm acting as if I don't. In what story do we believe that we're living? I want to tell you that it is evil's intention to devour the story of God and his people. And so it is to that story that we turn in order for us to answer the question, what do we do about shame? We don't just answer, ask, ask the question, what do we do about shame as if it's this, this abstract clinical thing? We have to answer it in the context of our own stories. So here's one, we're going to begin with this. We begin at the beginning in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. Now, we can read a lot about Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, but what we know is that it comes to a culmination at the 21st verse, 25th verse of the second chapter where we read that Adam and his wife were naked and they were without shame. The man and the woman, the different translations, there were man and the woman were naked and they were without shame. So some things to notice about this. It's, it, doesn't, it doesn't just say, and the people were. It says the male and the female, the man and the woman, the man and his wife, differentiated parts are naked. And to be naked in the Hebrew context is not just a description of how you wear clothes or you don't. It's not just about a physical description. It is a description of vulnerability. It's referring primarily to the fact that human beings are naked. You're like, oh my gosh, I didn't know that that's what was the case here. I thought I had my clothes on. No, we put clothes on ourselves. We are vulnerable creatures. We are not people who have to try to be vulnerable creatures. We don't have to decide to be vulnerable creatures. We are vulnerable creatures. We are the only creatures in the world that walk outside of our dwelling places with clothes on. 
Now, some people put clothes on their dogs. That's weird. Now, if there's somebody here that puts clothes on their dogs, is there anybody here that puts clothes on their dogs? You, okay, we all know that you're not weird. It's everybody else that does this, right? But I mean, like, did your dog ever ask you to put the clothes on? Did they say, she gets cold. You know, I know I live in DC, but I could find a Skype session for you tomorrow. <laughs> I know I could do this. Okay, you're very kind to, to you know, yeah, thanks for staying. Okay, so, <laughs> so, so here's the thing, like we are vulnerable creatures. And here's the other thing that this passage points out to us. We were people who were made differently, men, women, African-Americans, Caucasians, Hispanics, Asians, were made differently. Jews, Gentiles. And we were made destined to make things. And here's something that's important to know. Human beings make the most durable, beautiful things when we are willing to be vulnerable and do that creative work with others who are different than us. When I got married, my wife's name is Phyllis, when I got married, um, I just have to admit now that I didn't marry Phyllis. I, I didn't, as it turns out, I didn't really want to marry Phyllis. I wanted to marry a very sexy version of me. That's what I wanted to marry. I wanted to marry somebody who thought like me, felt like me, worked like me, but looked like that. <laughs> and as it turned out, oddly enough, that's not who I married. I married somebody very different than me. And next thing I know, we've got two kids. You get two different things, you get naked and you have babies. Here's the thing. We were made in vulnerable states in order to create with those with whom we have great difference in the absence of shame. Shame's presence in Genesis chapter 2 is not just to let us know what's coming in chapter 3. It is intended to let us know what our destiny was to make new, beautiful things and how we can do that when shame is not allowed to be in the room. Are you with me? Here's the problem. It's in the room all the time. Because it began when I was 15 months of age. And we know what happened when shame started in Genesis chapter 3 and all the curses and all the corrosion came. We have what we have now. This is the story that we live in. And I want to suggest to us that evil's intention in using shame was not just to get the male and the female to sin. His intention was to shear off the capacity of the creatures to make beautiful things. It is not just that evil wants to separate us from God. Evil wants to devour our capacity to create, which we were made to do. What new thing would you want to create in the next week, in the next month, if you couldn't be ashamed? If shame were not possible for you, what new thing would God want you to enter into to create that would take risk, of course? You see, shame isn't just about feeling bad. It is about evil's intention to keep you from becoming what God wants you to become. And so, 
we then turn to another passage of the Bible to explore what is God going to do about this? How does God address this? We turn to the 21st chapter of John. And here we find Jesus coming for his disciples one more time. And on the beach were seven disciples. And, you know, if you notice who these guys were, they were Peter, who just threw Jesus under the bus six weeks ago, and he denied him three times. You've got Thomas, who we learned one chapter earlier was a guy who had trouble believing in the resurrection. So already we've got a couple of guys who are a little, like, sketchy. We've got Nathaniel, who was only ever named one other time in the New Testament, in John chapter 1. And Nathaniel is the guy who says of Jesus, what good could come of Nazareth? That's number three. And then you've got James and John, who are just a bunch of troublemakers, right? They want to sit on his right side and left side. And then you've got two other disciples that we don't even get their names, right? That's probably kind of like where I would end up. Like, well, who were you? I was one of those disciples. Oh, which one? I was the one that wasn't named. Wouldn't you like to be in a story? And you were like, well, who were you in the story? I, 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 they didn't give me a name. I was an extra in the story. <laughs> the point is, is that these are people who are everything from not named, unimportant, to people who've had active trouble with Jesus. And Jesus finds them because Peter says, I'm going fishing to these other six. He says, I'm going fishing. They said, we're going to go with you. Now, this is another thing that shame does, right? Shame causes us to be unable to imagine the future new thing that Jesus wants to make with us. Instead, I'm just going to go back to my old life. And this is what Peter does. I mean, Peter has already been with Jesus in a resurrected form, twice at least. And he says, I'm going back to go fishing. Here's something that's going to happen. When you leave here today... There will be some who, when we, and it'll be true for me too, we will be tempted to go back to fishing when we've been invited into something different here this morning. There will be some parts of our life that will be represented by, like, that's what it means for Kurt to go back to his old way of thinking, being, sensing, feeling, imaging, because that's what I'm really good at. Only this time when they go out, they don't catch anything, and Jesus stands on the shore and says, Hello, it looks like you've got nothing. He does. He says it, well, not quite in the English accent, but the English accent of Aramaic. He says this because this is the other thing that shame does. Shame leads us into believing that we live in a world of scarcity. There's not enough love for me. My marriage isn't going to make it. My son's drug addiction, he's not going to make it. My work, it's not going to make it. We're not going to have enough this. We're not going to have enough that. I don't have enough. And the thing is, like, I can be fiscally completely solvent. I can have plenty of money, plenty of material stuff. But we live in a world where we keep accumulating because we believe we live in a world of scarcity. Because our real encounter with Jesus has yet to happen. And Jesus says to them, come and have breakfast. You know, if you want to have hard conversations with people, which Jesus is about to do, Make them breakfast, and then invite them to come. And make sure it's just not like, I mean, I like McDonald's, you know, breakfast, but like not McDonald's breakfast. Like it needs to be a spread. And when we serve a meal to people, we create space that can slow the pace, that can let people know that I'm going to be seen, I'm going to be heard, I'm going to be felt. And it's in this space that Jesus starts with Peter. Now notice in John 21, verses 15 through 17, the first thing that Jesus says after breakfast is, 
Simon, son of John. He doesn't call him Peter, which he'd already renamed him earlier in one of the other Gospels. He calls him by his old name. And I want to suggest something to us, that from the very beginning, one of the things that Jesus is doing is Jesus is coming for Peter's shame. Peter doesn't know this. Peter just thinks that he's being asked some simple, straightforward questions. Simon, son of John, he's not just talking about Peter. He's talking about Peter and all of his old life and his old name and what that represents. But he's also, in naming him son of John, he's also saying, I'm coming not just for you, but I'm coming for everything that has happened to you that you've received in your life, that you've received from your parents, that you've received from your grandparents. I'm coming for everything. You see, our shame isn't just something that we live with. It just belongs to us. We live with our parents' shame. We live with our grandparents' shame. We live with a whole history of shame. And it's not easy to unroot. And Jesus starts to ask him questions. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Three times. And we get to the third time, and Peter says... You know I do. And the text reads that he was hurt. He was grieved in his heart that Jesus asked him yet a third time. We can have all kinds of reasons for why Peter was grieved. I want to suggest that we just consider one thing. You see, if I'm Peter and Jesus keeps asking me, at some point, I'm going to be pretty, I'm going to be pretty sure that what Jesus, like Jesus is just trying to get to the point, right, that I don't really love him. Because if I loved him, I wouldn't have done what I did six weeks ago. Are you with me? It's entirely possible that what Jesus is doing is that Jesus knows that Peter is not done with his own shame yet. And Jesus is not willing for Peter to be left alone with it. He's coming for it. And he's not letting anything stop him asking questions. And so he would come to us and he would say, do you love me? And I would have to say like, nah, no, I don't. And, I, and that, that just really sucks to say this to you. And then you hear Jesus say these amazing things. You know, he doesn't say to Peter, you know, I knew all along that you weren't to be trusted. I knew what you were going to do. Every single time he says to Peter, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, feed my sheep. And I just want to invite us to consider this, that what Jesus is doing with Peter is he is saying to Peter, I see your shame. I'm not worried about it. I have work for you to do. How many of us have parts of our shame that we've hidden, we've tucked away, we've put it in small closets in our house, hiding it from God, and God is coming, and he's saying, do you love me? Let's go look at that closet. And I'm like, I don't want to show you what's in the closet. I don't want you looking in my closets. That's why I have them. I don't want anybody to see what's in my closets. And God says, I want to look at what's in your closet in order for us then to let you know that what's in your closet does not scare me. What's in your closet is no match for me. In fact, I want you to stop. I want us to go in. I want you to look at the closet. I want you to look at me looking at what's in the closet, that we both see, that we both see it, and you see me and see that I still have work for you to do. Even in the face of your shame, I can't believe that I get to be your king. I can't believe that I get to be your God in the very face of what you find to be most horrible about yourself. I'm coming for you. What is that thing? What are those places in our lives here today 
where Jesus is coming for our shame. But he's not just coming to heal it. He's not just coming to make us feel better. He's coming to say, I have work for you to do. In fact, it will be your very shame that I'm going to use that's going to transform the world. It will be your very shame, the thing that you think is the least part of you, that I'm going to use to change the world. In Japan, there is a, um, it's an art form. We'll bring this up. It's called kintsugi. Some of you might be familiar with this. It's based on a story that happened uh, many hundreds of years ago, which there was a warlord who had his favorite tea bowl, and the servant who was carrying it dropped it. It fractured. The warlord was angry. The servant's life was at risk. But the person who made the tea bowl said to the warlord, I think I can do something with this. I don't want you to do anything to your servant. And the person, the craftsman, took the fractures, fractured parts of the tea bowl, put them back together, and gilded them along the fracture lines with gold, brought it back to the warlord and said, this is what your bowl is really like. This is who we are. This is what we are becoming. Jesus comes for our shame in order to heal it and recommission us in the process that we become outposts of goodness and beauty through the very shame that we found to be so off-putting in the first place. Only God would come up with this idea. Where today does God want to meet you in your shame in order to feed others, in order to do the work of becoming artifacts of beauty in the very place where you thought it least possible? Let's pray together. Holy Trinity, we look to you to take all that we have done here in this time and seal it, bring it to fruition, that your kingdom may come on this earth as it is in heaven. And we say this in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen.